a stranger, a Christian, a missionary, so he claims. I beg the people here to desist from worshipping false gods and serving the devil. What do you know about our gods? Priest. He has been in the marketplace denouncing our gods. Should there be good faith between us and Christians? I will be Christian. Your gods are made with human hands and are deaf, dumb, and blind. What salvation can they bring you? Who, being senseless, can save themselves? How will you ever get Odin to forgive you now? Hello and welcome to Saga Briefs, where we look at the stories behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In our Saga Briefs... We take up a topic from the sagas that needs to be examined in a little more depth than we can give it in our regular episodes, and we've got a doozy this time for you. Oh yes, Uh, today we're talking about the conversion of Iceland to Christianity in 1000 AD. I've been looking forward to this one for quite a while. Well, I mean, of course, this is a topic that fascinates almost everyone who gets immersed in the sagas, Uh, but but we should explain why we're covering it now rather than... Well, I mean, there's a remake of Ben-Hur out right now. No, what? No, back up, back up. Try again. (laughs) Okay. Not good. (laughs) Um, Well, okay, in our most recent episode of Saga Thing, we covered the story of the conversion to Christianity from the point of view of Njal's saga. Ah, yes. Yeah, our friends Thongbrand and Hjalti Skegjason were entertaining, even if their story was sort of awkwardly dropped into the middle of the saga without warning. <laughs> and in case uh, in case you haven't heard that mm. episode of Njal Saga, or maybe you, you need a bit of a refresher, we're going to fill you in on the uh, the important details really quickly. Right. Uh, so the version of the story we got in Njal Saga was focused on one particular story from what we can almost call the conversion cycle in Icelandic history and literature. Mm-hmm. The saga itself kind of grinds to a halt for six chapters, while the story of Thongbrand's missionary visit to Iceland is told. Now, Thongbrand is an emissary of the Norwegian king Olaf Tryggvason, who's made the conversion of Northern Europe kind of a signature piece of his reign. Except that Thongbrand turns out to be rather a difficult person, and he and his team of Christian converts make as many enemies as they do friends. By the time their group leaves Iceland, They've said, Le- I think... What- Leaves is very generous, John. They're outlawed and forced <laughs> into exile by an angry mob. Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, yeah. So by the time they're thrown out of Iceland, is that better? That's much uh, better. They've fractured the island into two adversarial sides, and the situation is threatening to turn to outright warfare. The way the saga's author tells it, the whole thing comes to a head at the All Thing in the year 1000, 
when the pagan and Christian factions declare themselves independent of one another. Mm. Then finally, both sides agree to put their trust in the law speaker, Thorgeir Tjorvason, and he's going to decide the fate of Iceland and its competing religions. Oh. Now, Thorgeir excuses himself from the group, and after a day and a night under a blanket in silent meditation, he emerges with his decision. Despite being a pagan, he recommends Christianity as the national religion of Iceland. Imagine the pagan faction surprise. Yeah, well, they thought they had an advantage with the pagan law speaker and all, but uh, it didn't quite turn out that way at all. No. Uh, as far as Njal Saga is concerned, that's pretty much the entire story of the conversion. Yeah, the next chapter picks up with a blind warrior taking vengeance for his father's death, and the story just goes back into its groove towards Njal's burning. Right, and those abrupt shifts into and out of the conversion narrative, those are a sticking point for a lot of readers who see that section as, I guess, just sort of disconnected from the rest of the story. Well, as we discussed in that episode, the author might have his reasons for wanting to create a kind of demarcation in his narrative. But the point we need to make here is that Njal Saga doesn't tell the whole story of Icelandic conversion. Oh, no, not by a long shot. In fact, I'd argue that he skips most of the good stuff. Well, that's why we're here, talking about this instead of recording yet another episode of Njal Saga. We've been talking about a saga brief on the conversion for a long time, and, and this seemed like the most opportune moment to go into some of the history and the literary evidence about just what happened in or around the year 1000. Right, and in fact, we're going to be doing this in two parts, uh, partly because there's a lot to digest, and partly because otherwise we'd end up with an episode more than two hours long. Mm -hmm. And at some point, we have to sleep and eat and teach our classes. Oh, and we have families too, but who cares about them, right? Well... <laughs> All the same, I don't know that recording two one-hour episodes really solves the problem for us. It's still a lot of work. Well, I'm assuming that anyone listening to this has other things to do, too. Ah, okay, so two episodes, that'll solve everything, sure. Right. Uh, so we'll be talking about one of the stranger conversion stories of medieval Europe. For starters, Iceland's conversion had almost nothing to do with religious fervor. Hang on now. Well, mm -hmm. Before we get into that, we should establish our parameters here. Uh. Even with two parts... This could become a very large and messy story if we're getting into all the details of the conversion. Okay, well, um, the Njal Saga version works pretty well as an overview of the conversion story as it's generally understood. What we're going to be doing in this first episode is to fill in everything that happens before Thongbrand's arrival in Iceland. In other uh -huh. words, all the stuff that Njal Saga skips in order to shorten the story. And the second half will cover the things that we heard about in Njal Saga, but with the addition of the political and historical ramifications that the Saga author simply isn't interested in. Even though I think you can make an argument that he's missing the best parts. Mm -hmm. uh, there might be fewer axe murders than we're used to seeing in the sagas, but those of you who really enjoy the idea of economic sanctions and political pragmatism, you're in for a treat. Oh, that's a terrible job of selling this story. What was that? Well, <laughs> well there are some axe murders. I said fewer, not none. For those of you who love balancing budgets, this one's for you. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I do like axe murder, so I guess that's better. Um, so we're going to start out with the events of the late 10th century, which is going to mean going beyond what Njal Saga tells us. Right now, some of that's going to come from other sagas, but the rest is going to be a combination of various post-conversion writings, a bit of scholarly detection, and more than a little informed conjecture. Okay, but... Uh, Informed conjecture is just a fancy way of saying that we're guessing, right? Informed guessing, Andy. You heard me say informed. <laughs> but like yeah, true no, scholars. Right, right. Uh, but there are a few circumstantial factors that we have to make our best guess on. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll try to be clear about when we're doing that. 
Now, we're also going to have to lay a little bit of brickwork here in terms of of the historical context of the conversion. Mm. Since Iceland's conversion story is tied up in what's happening everywhere else in the north. So it's a lot of stuff to cover. And especially what's happening in Norway. True. All right. Well, we're focusing on the conversion to Christianity. So for now, we're, we're going to avoid going into specifics about the pagan faith that most Icelanders identified with prior to Christianity's arrival. And actually, that that could no, – I'm not – I shouldn't say this, John. It could <laughs> – the paganism could be a brief on its own. But See, yeah, I, I, yeah, I saw you heading there. Uh, mm. I think it would be more than one actually, um, just like this is. I've been thinking about how to tackle that, but today is not that day. No, maybe with the Edda, I guess we mm. could try to tackle That's that. That's what but, I'm thinking, uh, yeah. I'm going to – I'll say no as well for right now. <laughs> at some point, the Edda will serve as a palate cleanser for us. Perhaps yeah. I mean, at uh, some after point, we finish the family sagas. At some point, yeah, we got to finish the family sagas. Right, that was the whole, right. the whole point uh, of this endeavor. But what we're talking about today is the historical context for the conversion and the reasons that it happened when and how it did. That sounds about right, yeah. And even covering just that much is a heck of a story. It and really a fun is. One. This is a bit of a wild ride. Oh, and uh, before we get into the actual discussion, we should say that according to some sources, the arrival of the missionaries in Iceland at the end of the 10th century was actually Christianity's second trip to the island. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you want to explain that? Sure, yeah. The The thing to remember is that Iceland was still a relatively recent entity in the year 1000 when the mm-hmm. conversion takes place in or around, right? Right. Uh, the first settlers had only arrived in about 870. Now, this part we've talked about a lot because it's an important feature of so many of the sagas. It's essentially mm-hmm. the foundation story for Iceland as a nation. Exactly. So so the people who arrived around 870 were mostly Norwegian. Nearly all of them had fought and lost against the expansionist ambitions of King Harald Fairhair. And when they arrived, according to at least one source, they found the island uninhabited. Mm. Except for a small number of Irish monks who were there. We, I think we've talked about this story once, twice as well. Uh, yeah, I think we mentioned I, it in the uh, first episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I really feel badly for those monks. If they ever existed, of course. Sure. Actually, you know what? I'd feel even worse for them if they didn't exist. Existing <laughs> is awesome. <laughs> anyway. Let's keep anyway, going. Uh, assuming they did exist, those monks one day looked out into the ocean and saw square sails on the horizon. Oh. And then, well, we're not actually sure what happened to them. Uh, they either left or they were killed. Or they just died out, since monks aren't known for producing more monks. <laughs> Not when there's no nunneries around, that's right. for sure. <laughs> and, you know, it would be over a century before Christianity establishes any significant presence on the island again. So those poor monks right. didn't really do their job. Right, and that's a, that's a subject that we'll be debating as we go forward. Uh, but that's what we're talking about in this episode, the story of that moment when Christianity returned to Iceland. If it had ever been there in the first place. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. All right, so in order to cover this topic, we need to talk about a few things. Uh, the first thing we need to talk about is what Christianity's up against when it arrives. So we need to cover the nature of Iceland's pagan practices. Um, now, how long do you think we have for this? And I thought we were <laughs> going to do a saga brief on that. No, 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 no. We're just touching on it briefly here. Uh, I think there is going to have to be a separate brief at some point about pagan Iceland. Uh, okay. Anyway, uh, we'll also talk about why the conversion happened, when and how it did, And that's got to go hand in hand with Iceland's relationship with Norway. And really, that means Iceland's relationship to Norway's Christian king, Olaf Tryggvason. Of course. Who's running around forcing everyone else to be Christian. Right. It was Olaf who took the lead in pushing Christianity in the North Sea world and beyond. Right. And you'd think that would make it even less likely that Icelanders would convert. 
Why? Because of Olaf? Well, because of who Olaf is. He's a direct descendant of Harold Fairhair himself. Hmm. And the last element of the story, and for me it's maybe the most important to understanding the story is the conversion, is Iceland's unique form of self-rule. Mm-hmm. Icelanders followed a decentralized, legalistic form of self-governance that was ultimately more central to Icelandic identity than either pagan or Christian faith. National identity as Icelandic religion. I, I kind of like that. <laughs> well, I mean, that's not exactly what I mean. I mean that self-determination, whether legal, political, or just general, was more significant as a predictor of Icelandic attitudes than their religious identity was. I think so, yeah. Right. So if you're trying to predict how a given Icelander in the 10th century will respond to a situation like a new religion being promulgated in the island, I'd look to those nationalistic factors before I'd look at religious factors. You're a smart man, John, and that's why I love you. <laughs> so are we ready to get started? Sure. Uh, we should probably begin with a uh, quick explanation of the sources that we're going to be referencing. Okay, so explain, but keep it short. Part 1. Source Text Roll Call. Where'd everybody go? Where'd everybody go? You said source text roll call. Who cares? <laughs> that doesn't rivet everyone. That's not fascinating. No. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the short <laughs> version, if we can try to do this as quickly as possible, uh-huh. is that there really aren't many sources to look at. So it should be pretty easy. Uh, a little bit less short than that, I think. Uh, although, although it's true. Uh, those who study history know the difficulty of accessing and evaluating documentary evidence when there just aren't many documents available. And that's very much the case here. Right. In some ways, the situation surrounding medieval Icelandic history is much simpler than in the rest of Europe. It's mm. now, really... I noticed that you use the word simpler rather than easier there. Well, there's a good reason for that. Uh-huh. I mean, for Iceland, there just isn't any significant contemporary written record for the first 200 years following its settlement. Mm-hmm. The writing technology of Iceland during what we think of as the what we call the saga age was mostly limited to the difficult process of carving runic script. Not entirely, but mostly. Yeah. Uh, Iceland developed widespread literacy following the introduction of the Roman alphabet after the conversion. Mm-hmm. But the creation of written histories would still take some time to develop. Yeah. One of the great sources for an introduction to our subject is Jenny Jockin's article, Late and Peaceful, Iceland's Conversion Through Arbitration in 1000, uh, which was written in 1999. Yeah. Uh, that's a great resource for anyone trying to get a sense of the, the nuts and bolts of how Christianity came to the island. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, don't don't read it until after you listen to this episode because it's all spoilers. It's got tons of spoilers. <laughs> Actually, the title is kind of a spoiler, isn't it? Well, whose fault is that? I wasn't going to mention the article until later. <laughs> Sorry about that. Anyway, uh, the reason I brought it up is that Jockins makes a point of starting her article with the academic equivalent of a resigned sigh. <laughs> she, she says, the task of writing about the conversion is hampered less by a lack of information than by its dating. Yeah, that's that's entirely fair. Uh, we do have histories of the conversion, but almost nothing from the conversion. And because of that, our knowledge of most events in Iceland between the settlement in about 870, or perhaps earlier based on recent archaeology, right. um, and the early 12th century, when the sagas started to be written, uh, all that information is very, very limited. Mm-hmm. Well, the very this- fact that only with new archaeological evidence are we learning that there may have been settlers earlier, it suggests to you just how little contemporary knowledge we have. 
Yeah, although that recent archaeology suggests that it's not really settlers so much mm-hmm. as maybe it's a kind of like they use Greenland as a waypoint for right, right. Um, access to other lands. Right. Fishing but, fishing stopovers and that kind of thing. Exactly. And that assumes, of course, that that, that carbon dating and all of the archaeological evidence is, is accurate. And we just right. don't know quite yet. But anyway, the sagas themselves obviously count as a resource. But as we mm-hmm. mentioned before, using the sagas as historical documents is fraught with problems. Right. Not, not least of which is the ghost seals. Ah, I love ghost seals. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, apart from those sagas, we're working from a thin archaeological record, a few surviving fragments from runic writings. And well, and, and most of those, it, I mean, it's a few survivals of skaldic verse mostly. Right, skaldic verse. Uh, yeah, there, there's also a handful of references in contemporary sources from overseas. And most importantly, there's the earliest histories composed by the Icelanders themselves. Okay, so now about those early histories, mm-hmm. there's some debate about how reliable they are. Uh, there are good reasons to think that the early records of the conversion are more or less reliable, but more or less is not a term that scholars are usually comfortable with. Yeah, and that's more or less true in my opinion. Wah, wah. That was cute. I like that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but there are a few sources that have a greater claim to legitimacy than most. Uh, the most important writer for discussing Iceland's early decades is... Ari Thorgelson, or as we like to call him, Ari the Learned. Mm-hmm. Now, Ari's only surviving work is the early 12th century Islendingabok, or the Book of the Icelanders. Yeah, this is the foundational text. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are others, like Landnamabok, but to a large degree, Islendingabok forms the bedrock upon which later Icelanders would attempt to build the story of their past. Yeah. Many of the sagas are weighted by modern scholars, in part based on how well they accord with what Ari wrote. Which only proves the literary historical credentials of the sagas, but uh-huh. but that's a different issue. Sure, sure. Uh, but when it comes to the conversion, we're looking first and foremost at Islendingabok. Well, right now, we're mostly interested in it as a resource for the conversion story, but Islendingabok is a remarkable text for a bunch of reasons, mm-hmm. starting with the fact that Ari chose to write in Icelandic rather than in Latin. And most other histories True. written around this time are composed in Latin even if they're later translated in part into their local vernacular. Right. There's a seriously nationalistic flavor to Ari's writing. Oh, yeah. And that may be reflected in his choice. Uh, but when you consider that the Roman alphabet was only widely introduced into Iceland in the 11th century, Ari's decision to write in Icelandic with Roman letters is fascinating. Yeah, it's also worth a read on its own. It's just a, a cool book. Yeah. It's a little bare bones in places, but it's a fantastic primer for understanding the history that Icelanders told themselves about their land and their people. Yeah, yeah. Bare bones is a fair assessment, um, and so there are later texts like the Krishni Saga mm-hmm. um, that take Ari's basic stories and embellish his work with various enthusiastic accounts of miraculous events and magical portents surrounding the conversion. It's interesting right. stuff, right? And now, anyone who's read Njal's Saga or who's been listening to our episode on the conversion narrative in Njal is familiar with some of that version of the story: earthquakes, magical fire, crucifixes, paralyzing berserks, all kinds of good stuff. Yeah, that's episode 20G, I think. We just uh, got that done. Um, it's sort of uh, the companion piece to this brief. So mm-hmm. if you've somehow wandered into this episode without that context, it's worth listening to that as well. Right. Although you'll have to start at the very beginning of Njal's Saga right. and then work your way up to G. Right. Or better yet, just go out and read Njal's Saga. Shh, I'm trying to drive up our listener numbers here. Okay, but I'm trying to encourage literacy. Mm. But you were saying? It's the modern age. There's no mm. room for literacy anymore, John. Oh, pardon me. So there are later texts that indulge in a bit more invention, or at least the recording of oral traditions and rumors. 
Ari, on the other hand, generally seeks out verifiable material where he can find it. Mm-hmm. Ari's work lacks written sources, largely because he was the first for much of what he wrote down. But he right. records, at the very least, the memories of those who knew witnesses to the events, and when possible, the witnesses themselves. Now, considering that he's writing many years after the events of the conversion, Ari's got an impressive list of interviewees. Mm-hmm. Uh, he records memories of the son of an 11th century Icelandic liaison to the Norwegian court, a daughter of one of the chieftains present at the All Thing in 1000, an elderly man who remembers his own baptism by an early missionary to Iceland, and a son of Iceland's first bishop. It's a pretty impressive list. It's very impressive, but it's not a perfect work of history. Well. And Ari's goal was to write a text that accorded with historical facts while also making sense to contemporary cultural memory. He even submitted his work for review by several ecclesiastical authorities and revised it based on their comments. It's a peer-reviewed work. There you go. But that's an important point because the peers are all members of the church. Ari is concerned with writing a history that accorded with what his contemporaries thought of as their conversion story. And as any writer knows, an editor is always going to make changes. Oh, see, you're just saying that because you just wrote an essay for a volume I'm co-editing. Maybe a little bit. (laughs) You're a mean bugger sometimes. Oh, But but no, not really. I, I'm saying it because it's true. We have to assume that Ari's Wait, work that I'm was... Wait, I mean bugger sometimes? <laughs> Everyone knows that. Uh, but we have to also assume that Ari's work was influenced by his willingness to be edited by representatives of Christian authority on the island. Yeah, and no, I think that's fair. And that Ari's work was shaped by Christian sensibilities. And also, you're a mean bugger. All right, I'll accept both. Okay. Uh, and there is some evidence that Ari may have avoided details that would mess up his narrative including the possibility that small groups of Norse Christians may have lived on the island from the time of the settlement on. Yeah, that's not hard to imagine at all, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, even at the time of the settlement in 870, Christianity was pretty far advanced in the rest of Europe outside of Scandinavia. Exactly. Uh, and Icelanders were well-traveled. We know they were getting down as far as Byzantium in the 10th century. And alongside the faith of people all over Europe, the images of Christianity were everywhere. Mm-hmm. They're on coins, in ceremonies, in and outside of churches— in those monasteries the Vikings loved to raid and the crosses that they stole, and so on. <laughs> right. It would have been impossible for them not to learn something about Christianity in their travels, possibly in some detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, we know about those conversions of convenience that the Viking raiders sometimes underwent to make truces with Christian rulers. Oh, yeah. Uh, and some of those guys were connoisseurs of conversion. I mean, mm-hmm. remember the one Viking complaining that the robe he was given to wear wasn't as white as the last 20 he'd worn to his baptisms. <laughs> I love that story. Um, yeah. And another element of those raiding parties is the occasional taking of slaves or of wives from Christian lands. Some of those people ended up in Iceland, and some of them raised kids there. Yeah, so Christianity may have found its way into Iceland in a more domestic way long mm-hmm. before the missionaries arrived. I think it's very likely. Yeah. Um, now, certainly we can speculate about the influence of the Irish or Celtic Christianity on Icelandic practice, and that's likely to be the result of a stream of Irish wives and slaves being imported to the country and then the running households during the 10th century. Hmm. Yeah, of course, there's still the question of where those converts ended up. I mean, not every Icelander who went abroad returned home again, mm-hmm. and converts might have ample reason not to return if they weren't certain of a friendly reception. That's fair. Uh, now, as we'll see... There's at least a literary record of Christian Icelanders choosing to become expatriates and remain among their converters. But when you put the circumstantial evidence together, it's not hard to imagine that Christianity may have rubbed off on a few Icelanders before Olaf's missionaries arrived. In fact, 
it's likely that there were a pretty substantial number of them in Iceland. Yeah, well, there have been some, like Gunnar Carlsson, who have argued that Ari may have overemphasized the importance of Olaf's conversion efforts to the eventual conversion. Mm-hmm. Um, the presence of a growing Christian community on the island might actually support that point. Right. I want to be clear, though, that the presence of Christian on... Right. I want to be clear, though, that the presence of Christians doesn't necessarily imply a thriving Christian community any more than the presence of pagans automatically means that the pagan faith was robust on the island. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't personally want to gamble on the seriousness of either group's level of religious practice. But again, this is more of an inf- in this. But again, this is more of an inference than we need to be getting into here. The upshot is that we can look at a number of sagas and histories for color and anecdotal support about the conversion. But Ari's version of events is our best basis for conjecture. Okay, so let's conject. Mm. Part 2. Pagan and Christian in the 10th century. So, you said that we had to start by talking about what Christianity is up against when it arrives in the north. In other words, the pagan faith. Yeah. And uh, I take a pretty clear side on this. The way I see it, the spread of Christianity was really accelerated throughout the North by the lack of a hierarchical or centralized pagan faith. Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Okay. We see a fair amount of pagan religious practice in the sagas. And references to devoted practice by at least some of the Icelanders, especially early Icelanders. Mm -hmm. I mean, the very first saga we covered for the saga thing was Hrafnkel Saga Freysgoði. Sure. Uh, the main character in that saga devotes himself, his land, and his prized stallion to his god. Okay, now certainly the settlers in Iceland and elsewhere had religious practices, but I think you're touching the point when you say that true religious zeal is limited to isolated figures. Their devotion is unusual, and their contemporaries, or at least oral tradition, marks that unusual religious fervor as a feature of their individual character. Well, and and having said that, Hrofenkel's devotion turns out to be both short-lived and also somewhat ill-informed. <laughs> Once his fortunes turn sour, he swears off the gods and refuses to worship them ever again. Yeah, well, exactly. He's no Job. No, definitely not. Uh, but you're supposed to be playing devil's advocate here. Oh, right, okay. How about this? In our second saga, Erbige's saga, mm-hmm. we met Thorolf Mosterbeard, a man who's so devoted to Thor that he makes a gift of the region of Thor's nest to the god himself. Oh, I really enjoy that guy. Of course you do. He's awesome. Mm-hmm. Now, Thorolf centers his religious practice on a mountain that he calls Helgafell, and he declares that the mountain, its land, and the assembly place at its peak are all sacred to Thor. Uh-huh. It's all so sacred that Thorolf won't let anyone go to the bathroom on the mountain, uh-huh. and they have to travel out to a specific rock in a tidal water instead. I knew you were heading for this. Yes, the the famous yeah. Dritskær, or poop rock. That's right. Uh, an outhouse for the incontinent Thor worshiper. <laughs> Show your devotion to Thor. Stand tall on Helgafell, but squat on poop rock. <laughs> <laughs> when you gotta go, you gotta go. All yeah. the way down the mountain and out into the water. Just imagine all these guys just <laughs> clenching and stumbling their way down the mountain. <laughs> you know, I don't know why everyone doesn't read these sagas. I really don't. They're so good. Seriously. Uh, I think as saga promoters, we need to get Dritzker into the public consciousness. We I mean, do. This is, this is a toilet boulder washed clean by the changing tides. Think of the political <laughs> metaphors alone. Uh, you know, I, I think we need to maybe get a Dritzker uh, shirt out there. Right. Or maybe just start selling, like, pet rocks, but... <laughs> <laughs> a much nastier pet rock. <laughs> Your piece of Dritzkir here. Yeah. All right, let's ignore the poop rock for a minute. 
John, you visited Helgefell a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. Um, can you dare deny its magnificence? I think not. <laughs> it's clear evidence of religious practice so profound that it transformed the meaning of the landscape itself. Well, I'm not sure what my visiting the mountain has to do with anything. Uh, did it open up for you? Did, did no, you no, in? nobody wanted me. Uh, uh, it well. is pretty cool, but again, Thorolf is the exception, not the rule. His dedication to Thor is seen as unusual and even excessive by those around him. Remember, his actual name is Hrolf. Everyone starts calling him Thor Hrolf or Thorolf in recognition of that unusual level of piety. Okay. And the Dritzker story does feel like a bit of an exaggeration, mm-hmm. whether by an author or through oral transmission over the years. So Aww, I'll don't grant say you that. that. I really want it to be true. Well, well, in any case, the saga also demonstrates that no one else shares Thorolf's dedication, or almost no one else does. His descendants treat control over Helgafell as a political power rather than a religious one. And once Thorolf dies, his neighbors become openly derisive of the entire poop rock rule, and they refuse to continue the practice. Well, first of all, I would say that political power and religious power often go hand in hand in the Middle Ages. But uh, I, as far as Erbage's saga goes, they're, they're not so much fearful of Thor's anger as they are of Thorolf. So you have a point. Well, and maybe not even that. I mean, Thorolf's generally pretty well liked and everyone's willing to play nice as long as he's alive. But his piety is also a convenient way to establish and retain dominance over a region. And that dominance is going to continue to be an issue in subsequent generations. Mm-hmm. I think that what we see in that, that saga is respect for a well-liked founding settler and patriarch of the region. That doesn't necessarily translate into widespread religious zeal. True, but that's a text that's written by a 13th century Icelander sure. who's imagining how things went mm-hmm. and how people responded to this pagan. And that's he's certainly true. not going to build up the pagan person as a as a hero. Right. Right. And I don't think but that any- you're making any uh you're making any headway as a devil's advocate here. You keep mm. finding yourself arguing on <laughs> on my side. <laughs> I'm not a good devil's advocate. <laughs> anyway. Uh, whatever the level of devoutness in that settlement generation, the religious aspect of their feud doesn't get passed down. It, it's pretty clearly a struggle for social and political dominance by the second or third generation of the feud. Right. And having said all that, we definitely do get references to more general pagan practices and traditions in the sagas. Uh, let's stick with Erbage Saga for a minute, since that's one of the sagas where we get that high seat pillars story. Absolutely. Yeah, let's talk about the high seat mm-hmm. pillars. Yeah, so in a few sagas, we get reference to this practice. New immigrants arriving in Iceland by ship threw overboard the consecrated high seat pillars from their previous homes. Right. Now, these pillars were valuable works of art and heirlooms. Uh, They were most likely carved with the head of Thor or another god of personal significance. And these pillars were then thrown into the sea Mm -hmm. and would then float into the land, showing the faithful where to build their new homes. It suggests more than a little faith in the gods, or at least in the power of fate, to work through the gods' images. So I'm going to rest my case as devil's advocate. Yeah, don't rest just yet. Uh, (laughs) I'd agree with your second point more than your first. I think this whole thing shows more faith in fate than in the gods directly, if that. But even more than that, I tend to see these practices indicative of a cultural tradition as much as maybe even more than what we tend to think of as a religious tradition per se. And there's also that suspicious part of me that says that these are experienced sailors and, and ship captains, and they would know how to throw those pillars in at the moment when the tides are right to send those pillars to where they wanted to <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, maybe so, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I, I really am just being contrary here. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I don't want to suggest that God is some kind of absentee landlord. <laughs> it's devil's advocate. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, it's it's difficult to know exactly how devoutly Icelanders practice their pagan faith, uh, partly due to the lack of archaeological evidence and partly due to the mediating influence of Christian writers and historians who are composing all of the texts that tell us about the early Iceland. Right. Now, it's a definite factor that I forgot to mention. Uh, Ari Thorlson all his informants and all his imitators are at least nominally Christian, and in most cases, more than nominally. Yeah, they're hardly likely to offer a clear view of the pagan practices that had theoretically been on the wane for a century or more. Right. Now, occasional references to sacrificing stones, oath rings, or sacred spaces, they might tantalize our imaginations, but they offer little in the way of hard evidence. Oh, and don't forget uh, eating horse meat and uh, exposing children. Oh, I won't forget that. Yeah, and even then, how reliable are those references? I mean, even the fairly extensive description of the pagan temple to Thor in Erbidja Saga relies on Christian analogs to help explain pagan practice to its readers. And that suggests that the audience for this didn't have a very clear idea of the pagan past, or that the author himself might not be altogether sure of his subject. That's probably fair. Oh, and, and we did just see another pagan temple described in Njal's saga. Remember the elaborate temple of Earl Hauken, the, the one that Killer Hop desecrates? Right, yes. Um, and, and these temples seem to get desecrated a lot. And I suppose it's not surprising given the religious prejudices of the authors telling the stories. But Hauken's temple in Njal's saga is a much different space than what's described in Erbidja. Yeah, the description offers a different way of thinking about these temples. The temple is built around three statues, a seated statue of Thorgerd Holgabrudi, or Holgi's maiden, mm-hmm. and there's another statue of Erpa, uh, Thorgerd's sister. And then there's a third one that shows Thor steering his chariot. Mm-hmm. And all three of these idols are clothed and ornamented with gold bracelets. Right, which is great. It suggests a much more fluid pantheon of legendary figures, demigods, and gods informing pagan religious practice among the Norse. And probably Icelanders, too. Sure, and all this isn't far away from the things we're talking about in this episode. Mm-hmm. After all, Snorri, like everyone else writing about the pre-Christian Norse world, is heavily reliant on Ari the Learned. The two men are separated by only a generation or so. At least. I mean, Ari dies in 1148, which is about 30 years before Snorri's birth. Sure, but Ari is still recognized as the authority on the settlement and conversion. Oh, yes, absolutely. And the Njalsaga author is another few generations down the line mm-hmm. still. But it's also building on its predecessors in trying to recover what pagan practice might have actually looked like. Absolutely. Uh, but with all these descriptions, we're at one or more removes from actual pagan practice. We get these hints. And there's mm-hmm. bits and pieces from the work of archaeologists and historians that can obviously inform our reading of those hints. But definite information is hard to come by. Yeah, what we do know, or at least what we can guess with some confidence, is that religious practice on the island was varied in intensity and probably in ritual and form as well. Uh-huh. Uh, and that mosaic of faith practices in Iceland means that there was probably relatively little reinforcement of a nationally cohesive religious identity. Paul Schock has argued that the polytheistic or pagan faith had been on the wane for some time. And that weakening may have been due to contact with Christian communities or to individual differences in levels of piety. But it was also due to the migrations that took displaced families far from the sacred spaces that they connected with the roots of their faith. Hmm. In, in other words, when a religion's tied to specific locations and topographical features, it doesn't really travel well. Which makes sense, really. Yeah, a more extreme version of that idea is Jenny Jawkins' claim that the transferal of pagan society to Iceland in the first place was probably more a matter of cultural inertia than religious conviction. Mm-hmm. 
I think that what she's saying there is when early Icelanders worshipped, it was more out of habit than genuine devotion. I don't know if I'd go quite that far necessarily, but there may be some merit to what both Shock and Jokins have to say. I think so. And I actually might be willing to go as far as Jokins does. Hmm. Uh, and there's another factor that I think gets underemphasized in scholarship. Which is? Which is the number of women in places like Iceland who weren't part of the Norse emigration in the first place. I made reference to this earlier. A lot of Icelandic families were made up of a Norwegian father and a mother from somewhere else in the European world. Those women, those mothers, influenced the role and presence of religion in their households, and their attitudes would be instilled in their children. Mm. And their religions might be different in small or in large ways from the so-called public religion of the island's male leaders. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, there are a number of national conversion narratives that begin with the marriage of a Christian woman to a pagan king, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. I think about the mission of Augustine of Canterbury to Anglo-Saxon England, for example. Uh, that was designed to target an influential pagan king with a Christian wife. Right. Uh, the hope was that Ethelbert might receive the mission more favorably and perhaps even listen to them because of their of her positive influence. Mm-hmm. I, I've got no doubt that the various women brought to Iceland in the settlement age set this process in motion, whether through disinterest in the Norse pantheon or through privately practiced Christianity itself that they would then pass on to their children. Mm-hmm. But okay. That's hard to prove. So <laughs> what, what does all of this mean for our conversion story? Well, we haven't really talked about the conversion yet, have we? I, well, it means that when Christianity began to spread through Scandinavia and reached emigrant groups, uh, the Icelanders, the Faroese, or the Greenland settlement, when they met these people, the missionaries may not have faced a deep-rooted pagan faith. Instead, they met independent-minded peoples practicing religion in a, I would say, a casual and piecemeal fashion. And those pagans weren't necessarily hostile to conversion on primarily religious grounds. And yet the missionaries, especially in Iceland, faced pretty stiff resistance. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw some fairly heated exchanges in the account in Njal saga, and in some cases, even open violence. Right. Although that violence usually sets the table to establish the superiority of the Christian cause. But if we eliminate religious fidelity, we can consider a different motive for the Icelandic resistance to Christianity. Okay, now I think I know where you're going with this, but I'm going to bite. What is that exactly? Go ahead. Well, the church itself. With a capital C. Right. By the end of the first millennium AD, the church is internationally powerful. Icelanders, if we can generalize for a moment, were culturally predisposed to distrust all authority, especially external authority, and especially external authority that came with the Norwegian king's stamp of approval. The monolithic Christian church, coupled with Norwegian royal authority— It's not surprising they resisted. It's actually surprising they didn't kill the missionaries outright. Well, I mean, according to Njal's saga, they tried to absorb them into the earth. Well, (laughs) we'll get to that. Uh, The story is a little more complicated than Njal's saga led us to believe. So there's a logic to your anti-church idea here. Mm. But there was most likely a combination of both factors. Some religious or cultural elements and some political factors. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's most likely that the missionaries encountered examples of both. And so we're frequently on the wrong foot when trying to overcome local resistance. Well, I mean, their habit of insulting local gods and holy places didn't help. Uh, Yeah, well, that's true, I guess. And once again, we have to remember that our sources exclusively date from well after the conversion, with all the prejudices in Christianity's favor that one might expect. Yeah, and it's actually pretty surprising that the missionaries come off as badly as they do. In fact, even more surprisingly, their tactics are working almost everywhere else in the north. That sounded like a segue. Indeed it was. Let's do it! Part 3. Christianity in Scandinavia. 
So when we talk about missionaries who targeted Iceland, we have to think about them in the context of the rest of Northern Europe. Yeah, this is one of the elements really missing from Njal Saga. The conversion seems to come almost out of nowhere on a first reading. Uh-huh. And even when you do know it's coming, you have to really be on alert to pick up the clues in the chapters leading up to it. Well, the upshot is that Christianity is on the move everywhere. I mean, around the North Sea and all across Scandinavia. Right, but we can't think about this in terms of a monolithic new religious practice sweeping the land, you know? Mm-hmm. Christianity has the advantage of a unifying power in the Roman Church. But its practice is widely varied, especially as we move further and further away from the center of papal authority. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Uh, It's one of the most misunderstood features of the First Millennium Church. Uh, Religious practice was informed and transformed by local custom everywhere. There's a remarkable amount of coordination of the church in larger matters, but local variation was often ignored or even leveraged by church officials. Yeah, so what we're looking at is a faith with several central features that would be recognizable across Christendom, but Mm -hmm. also with a great deal of local flavor. I mean, this is all fine, but it starts to sound like Christianity wasn't much more compelling than the pagan faith it was replacing. Well, that's more of a theological question. I'd love to get into a bit of comparative theology here, but we do have other work to do. The semester just started, Andy. I've got papers to grade already. Let's stick to historical events here. Well, I've already graded a batch of papers. I don't know what you're waiting on. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, thinking about this from a socio-political perspective, conversion to Christianity comes with those political ties to Rome and to other Christian nations that could really help an early adopter in a region. Oh, and at some point, the success of Christianity becomes its own argument. Right. Especially the economic success of it. Sure. Uh, especially as the non-converting areas start to feel squeezed by all the converts around them. So if we're trying to figure out why Christianity is doing so well in the 9th, in the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries, what we're looking at is a combination of several factors. Mm-hmm. So first, there's the the lack of a uniform or compelling religious identity on the part of polytheistic Scandinavians. Uh, there's the political advantages of alliance with Christian Europe. There's at least potentially a legitimate religious conversion in some areas that mm-hmm. feeds the conversion narrative elsewhere and supplies it with missionaries. Right. And eventually this Christianity's increasing ubiquity. But what's that old line? A uh, quantity has a quality all its own. Even in Iceland, a few heads are being turned by the possibilities of this new religion. And in turning to Christianity, those converts were joining a rapidly growing movement among Scandinavian peoples. So in essence, the conversion process is propelled by numerous factors. Genuine religious evangelism, the waning authority of what had always been, at best, a loosely organized pagan religious tradition, and the political realities of an increasingly Christianized Europe. Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't forget the fact that uh, Iceland's contact with Europe is mainly England, uh, Scotland, those areas, and Norway. Right, the North all, Sea Empire, as it's sometimes Exactly, called. all Christian nations mm-hmm. at this stage. So Iceland, by not being Christian, really stands out and needs to think about its position. Sure. Um, and while some areas uh, converted quickly, others did resist, and some were left in religious isolation for a time as a result. So by late 10th century, the work of converting holdouts was often taken up by other Scandinavian peoples newly converted to the church themselves. Right. Okay, I think we've got it. Now let's look at a few regional details. All right. So, well, so you just brought it up. Let's pick up the story in the late 10th century. All right. Uh, So by then, Christianity had slowly been spreading throughout the North for nearly two centuries. Okay, but hang on. Let's not give a false impression here. This isn't a steady advance. Oh, oh, no, definitely not. No, there were short bursts of missionary activity with quite a few setbacks. Right. A lot of bloodshed, too. Sure. And each area converted according to its own internal logic. So 
Denmark, for example, uh, Denmark converted slowly between the late 8th through the 10th centuries, with local kings converting in order to maintain peace with their Christian neighbors. Or to gain help from those Christian neighbors in maintaining or expanding their own power. Sure, yeah, of course. Uh, Now, how about Sweden? Okay, well, Sweden first accepted missionaries in the 9th century, and they had some success, but it was mostly limited to the larger population centers. Right, and, and that's a cleavage point that I think gets ignored far too often in thinking about religious life and experience in the Middle Ages. You mean urban areas versus rural areas? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of focus on class and the political sphere, and elements like gender and social dimensions get some attention as well. But when someone like Eamon Duffy or Sherry Olson comes along and really digs into how place affects religious identity and practice, you realize how often it gets ignored. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I know a lot of people work on that kind of thing in um, Europe more broadly for mm-hmm. the Middle Ages, but uh, I don't know who's doing that kind of work with Scandinavian studies. Right. It, it's an interesting field. Yeah, no, put it on the list of things we have to study. Uh, yeah. But I'm sorry, you were talking about Sweden. Right, right. Population centers and mm-hmm. all. Yeah, so even though multiple Episcopal sees have been established around Sweden by the year 1000, pagan and Christian practitioners remain in conflict throughout the 11th century and beyond. There are still rural pockets of pagan practice reported in Sweden into at least the 13th century. Now, to contrast with that, uh, Norway's major conversion moment came in 995 when Olaf Tryggvason took the throne several years after his own conversion to Christianity. Yeah, Olaf's shown up in several of the sagas we've covered already, and he played really important roles in Eric the Red Saga and Halfred's Saga, for example, which both contain significant conversion narratives of their own. Right, and as we mentioned earlier, Olaf's going to be a major figure in our story. But at the point when he takes control of Norway in 995, a large number of the less central areas in the north remained mostly polytheistic or pagan. So that includes Finland, Iceland, and Greenland, mm-hmm. and the Faroe Islands and some small scattered outposts here and there. Right. Uh, you can keep going. Uh, so as we're surveying things as they stand at the end of the 10th century, one of the determining factors in which regions were converted seems to be the degree of centralized authority. Yes. Right, so throughout Europe, conversion was most easily accomplished through a top-down model, whereby the royal family or local earl converted and then disseminated the new religion as concomitant to his authority. Concomitant. That's exactly the word I was thinking. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good word. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that kind of thing does happen a couple of different ways. There's the fashion model where the new religion is promoted and practiced by the prominent family and then disseminated through imitation. Uh, but there's also the hierarchical model where the conversion of the ruling figure or family is seen as the end in itself. Right. Now, the assumption being that everyone else will eventually fall into line as the ruler's new faith inevitably becomes theirs. Mm-hmm. It's like trickle-down economics except for religion. And except that it occasionally works. Ooh, Reaganomics burn, I guess. (laughs) An 80s joke. There you go. There you go. That's our one and only political 80s joke. I hope you all enjoyed it. I did. Uh, (laughs) I know you did. In less centralized regions, the bottom-up model was at least as likely as the top-down. Mm-hmm. Now, in those regions, conversion was slower, more piecemeal. And maybe more likely to involve violence, probably. Well, yeah, that's an interesting point. Well, uh, in that respect, the Faroe Islands are an interesting parallel to the Icelandic situation. Yeah, for anyone who's not familiar with them, the Faroe Islands are a group of, yeah, well, they're islands. <laughs> <laughs> if only that were in some way indicated in their name. Right. Uh, so the Faroes are north of Scotland, which mm-hmm. often comes as a shock to Anglophiles who think that the world more or less ends at John O'Groats. 
Yeah, they're also about halfway between Norway and Iceland. And like Iceland, they had a wave of Norwegian settlers after Harold Fairhair's conquest of Norway in the 9th century. Uh-huh, right. Which means that like Icelanders, the Faroe Islanders resisted royal authority, especially Norwegian authority, almost as a matter of principle. Right, and both the Faroes and Iceland were on the list of places targeted for conversion by Olaf Tryggvason of Norway in the late 990s, as was Greenland. Mm-hmm. Um, and all three had very different reactions to the conversion effort. Right, well, we already talked about the Greenland conversion as it was depicted in our Eric the Red episode. The mm-hmm. short version was that Leif Erikson was on his way to convert Greenland when he got lost. He accidentally ended up in North America and then sailed back to Greenland to complete his mission. He converted a lot of the Scandinavians living in Greenland, including his mom, but he couldn't convince his father, Eric, to switch faiths. Yeah, making for awkward moments in the family for a while. Yeah, very much so, I would think. Uh, especially when Leif's mom refused to share her bed with a pagan. There's another underappreciated factor in conversion. Ah, the old Lysistrata method. Uh, although, I suppose you probably call it the Chirac mm-hmm. method these days. Yeah, that might help for anyone who saw whatever obscure movie you're referencing. Even I don't obscure? know. Obscure? <laughs> oh, all right. But back to the topic. Uh, do you want to explain what happened in the pharaohs? Yeah, yeah. Uh, according to Faringa Saga, the Saga of the Pharaohs, the island's conversion began when a Christian Faroese native named Sigmund, accompanied by armed men, attempted to convert the Faroese by reading out a decree at their thing. I want to point out that a conversation that we're having in which uh, Lysistrata and Chirac are considered obscure, but Faringa Saga is considered to be <laughs> a normal topic of conversation, yeah, right. is an odd kind of conversation. I mean, I know uh, Faringa Saga, but I'm not sure what you're talking about. Right. Uh, but in any case, so Sigmund is shouting out a decree of conversion at their thing. It seems yeah. like a flawed strategy. Well, it is, but the uh, the assembled crowd react with some fairly predictable mob violence. Uh, oh, Sigmund manages to escape the mob, though, so it's good, you know. Uh, good for him. Yeah. His second plan was more effective. Uh, Sigmund broke into the local chieftain's home at night and offered him the choice at Swords Point to either convert or die. Ah, so this is that emphasis on top-down conversion that we talked about. Yeah, or to put it another way, it's a heck of a strong pragmatic argument. It's an offer he can't refuse. Right. If I can do a movie reference. Sure, there you go. That's a- <laughs> You've seen movies, too. Yeah. Uh, but the problem with that is that it still relies on there being one important throat you can point a sword at. <laughs> yeah, and it works in the pharaohs. I mean, mostly mm-hmm. because of the power of the earls there. As we'll see, the totally decentralized power structure of Iceland meant that the conversion there would be a different matter entirely. So in other words, what strategy for conversion works when there's no central authority to convert? Essentially, yeah. The problem is that you run out of swords before the locals run out of important throats. <laughs> This is a nice way of putting it. Uh, and there's another problem. As we're going to see, it's hard to escape the impression that the missionaries were mostly, uh, let's be charitable and say, ill-suited to their work. I'm looking at you, Thangbrand. There are less charitable ways to say it. Yeah. Uh, most of the time, their actions seem more likely to provoke resistance rather than overcome. Yeah, sure, in hindsight, I guess. Um, and they were hindered by a variety of factors as well. Well, so let's look at what they were getting up to. Part 4. Olaf Tryggvason's Missionary Positions. <laughs> that title is a new low for us. <laughs> uh, we could probably sink lower than that if you give me time, but uh, I like the title a lot. Uh-huh. Um, it makes an important point. To understand what motivated the missionaries to Iceland and the response to them, we have to look at the man who encouraged their work, King Olaf Tryggvason of Norway. 
Now, we mentioned at the outset that Olaf was the great-grandson of Harald Fairhair. Yes. That's a fact which was not lost on Icelanders who descended from those who had fled Harald's autocratic rule. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that tends to stick in the mind for Icelanders. Hey, what's a little nation-building war between friends? Is that a serious question? Because the answer is a grudge that lasts for generations. It wasn't serious, but you're absolutely right. Uh, relations between Olaf and Iceland were strained, but not openly hostile. Uh, but when Olaf determined from the outset of his brief reign to convert the North to Christianity, he set his sights on Iceland straight away, stirring up some concern from the leading men of Iceland. Which is understandable. I mean, from their perspective, Olaf's missionary zeal may well have looked like a conquest by other means. Right, but a long memory can work for both sides. Olaf seems to have known Iceland was going to need careful handling. And in what we would have to call a politically sensitive move, Olaf apparently chose to send a Christianized Icelander to make the case for the conversion on his behalf. His name was Stefnir Thorgelson. According to sources... Stefnir was an expatriate Icelander who was now a member of Olaf's personal retinue. Uh, he was loyal to Olaf, had family and friends in Iceland, and was apparently a sincere convert to Christianity. So in other words, an ideal candidate for a missionary job. Yeah, in fact, he's almost too good to be true. Yeah. This is where we begin to run into the difficulties presented by the sources, which were, again, exclusively written from a post-conversion Christian perspective, and are almost all written as sagas. Narratives which privilege historical legend as indistinguishable from fact. Mm -hmm. Much of the difficulty, of course, comes from the distance between medieval and modern ideas of what history means and what its purpose is. Yeah, that's too long a discussion to enter into here, but we've well, touched on it at various points in other Saga Thing episodes, particularly episode 1C. Look at you. Mm, I have a memory. For the moment, though, let's stick with the understanding that the sources are often built from a commingling of oral historical narratives, local and toponymic traditions, uh, legendary stories, and, and even poetry. And the limited documentary sources that were available to Ari the Learned and uh, other early Icelandic historians. Yeah, sure. Uh, modern historians try to correlate these texts with one another and, and with the limited archaeological record to create a more reliable conjecture about the events. But in many cases, we're still relying on a skeptical reading of secondary sources, which purport to report history. And the reason we bring this up now is to set the stage for the fractured nature of Stefner's trip to Iceland. Some sources credit him with being the first of Olaf's missionaries to the island, Others suggest he was second or even third, and others seem uncertain as to whether he even existed. Yeah, and, and some modern scholars have pointed to his name, which is a Norse transliteration of the Norman-English name Stephen, that, as evidence that he's likely a later fabrication entirely. Yeah, I see no merit in that. Uh, hmm. Conversion was frequently accompanied by a baptismal renaming. Uh, remember our old friend Rollo the Viking? Yeah, that's right. He was renamed Robert, wasn't he, at his own baptism? Uh-huh. Mm. I admit it's a little jarring to find a name like Robert or Stephen at the heart of a saga story, but names were being introduced into Norse pretty routinely. I mean, take Njal Thorgerson, the hero of Njal Saga. His name isn't a Norse name, at least not originally. No, it's it's Neil. Exactly. There's no reason to think that Stefner wasn't given a Christian name when he converted. As we said, the sources all seem to treat his Christianity as genuine and not a political posture. So let's posit that he either existed or else that he's an important part of the conversion story as it gets told anyway. Okay. Uh, when when Stefnir, or Stephen, does appear, 
he seems to be a fairly typical saint missionary in the continental tradition. Well, meaning what? He combines divinely inspired argument with a passion for destroying pagan holy places? Yeah, more or less. Uh, He travels (laughs) widely around the island for a year, proselytizing everywhere, but he doesn't meet with a great deal of success. Uh And more importantly, in Krishnisaka, Stefanir is depicted as an utter failure of a missionary. He alienates the local populations to such a degree that they pass new laws obligating relatives of Icelandic Christians to prosecute them for blasphemy. Right, and we can assume that that was a direct response to Stefanir's behavior. Yeah. Since Stefanir was one of only a handful of known Christians of Icelandic origin in the country, and since he'd taken to smashing idols and desecrating sacred spaces, it's not hard to draw the conclusion that the law was specifically designed to undermine Stefanir and his conversion efforts. Yeah, it's sort of amazing that he even survived this trip. It really is. As we know, an annoyed Icelander is often a violent Icelander. And in other sagas, Norwegians in Iceland tend to have the survival potential of a snowman in the Sahara. <laughs> now, of course, Stefanir's not Norwegian by birth, remember. He is an Icelander. True, but an expat who's returning as Olaf's man. But this is an important point I want to get back to. Olaf's representatives tend to behave badly or incompetently, but they do seem to survive. And it is representatives, plural, that we're talking about. Definitely. Uh, in fact, even if he existed historically, Stefnir's was probably not the first mission to convert Iceland. Right. There, there's another guy, uh, Thor, Thorvald something. Is that right? Yeah, Thorvald? yeah, that's very good. Uh, I read up on him in Kristni's Saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorvald Conrathson, or Thorvald Far Ranger. He's another native Icelander, and his effort would have been even before Olaf came to power. So we're looking at more like the 980s or, or early 990s at this point. Uh-huh. Uh, Thorvald brought to the island a group of missionaries, including a German bishop named Friedrich. And how's that work out for them? Eh, pretty much as you'd expect. I'm going to expect total disaster, maybe a little bit of violence. Yeah, see, you've yeah. got it. Hmm. Uh, now, according to Christie's saga, Thorvald gets into trouble really quickly when he responds to the Icelanders' resistance to his proselytizing by attempting to preach at the annual gathering of the All Things. Well, I mean, in theory, that could be a sound strategy. All of Iceland's opinion makers and leaders are present at the All Thing, and, and they're probably sober. And well, Wait, sober? Yeah. No. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that, but mm. sober or not, several poets leap up and compose verses mocking Thorvald and his friends. What kind of verses? Well, one of them suggests that Friedrich, the German bishop, was the mother of nine of Thorvald's children. <laughs> Oh, that's that's not good. No. It's pretty dirty. Uh, and, and that's only one of several verses that seem designed to provoke the Christians to violence. And it rather predictably works. Thorvald flies into a rage and kills two men over the poems. <laughs> Nothing like your mama jokes to uh, right, exactly. push exactly. the uh, the uh, missionary Christians over the brink. Uh-huh. Uh, well, uh, I, it's hardly surprising that he would get riled up, though. I mean, we've talked before about the vulnerability of masculinity in saga literature, and that masculine profile is nearly always heteronormative, aggressively so. Right. So a verse accusing either Thorvald, the bishop, or both of failing to conform to that normative masculinity would effectively remove them from having agency in the public sphere, especially at the all thing. And the bishop might already be vulnerable to accusations about his masculinity, and the bishop might already be vulnerable to accusations about his masculinity due to his celibacy. Yeah, might be, I think, is the operative phrase there. 
Uh, it's not clear from context how much Icelanders in the 10th century knew about the celibacy of Christian clergy or how seriously they took it if they did know. I mean, heck, for that matter, it's hard to know whether Friedrich took celibacy all that seriously. Not every 10th century clergyman did. I know, yeah. Uh, but, but there are a number of potential points of vulnerability for Friedrich. He's also German, not Icelandic, and, and who mm-hmm. knows what his hair or clothes look like. He's an sure. easy target for skaldic verse. It could well be. Uh, it's hard to know for sure. Yeah, and wait, oh, hang on. We said that Thorvald is an Icelander, right? Right. Well, technically an ex-Icelander, but that's not a distinction that would mean much at the time. Well, well, then he's got a right to take violent revenge for a Neath poem, a slander's verse uh, at his expense. So legally, he might be in the clear. Well, I suspect that's the way he sees it. Well, but of course, actually killing people at the all thing, it's kind of dicey. You're not supposed to do that. Well, it didn't stop it from happening on occasion, but yeah, it's not cool. It's actually illegal, but right. yeah. Um, and yeah, it's also just bad form. I mean, that is a problem. Uh, but another problem is that Thorvald really doesn't have a lot of friends present. Uh, and so he and his German bishop are outlawed by common agreement. And then what happens? Well, that depends on our source. In terms of Iceland's conversion story, Thorvald is now, as the sagas say, out of our story. Ah. So assuming that Thorvald's mission actually happened, which might be assuming a lot, it mm-hmm. mainly established a precedent for Christian missionary work ending badly, or even violently. In which case, Stefnir was facing a difficult situation as soon as he stepped off his boat. Mm-hmm. And even if it didn't, Stefnir seems not to have made things any easier on himself. Right. So like Thorvald, Stefnir gets outlawed. Uh, he returns to Norway and to Olaf in 996, having arguably made an effective case against Christianity through his efforts. <laughs> and is he out of the story as well now? Uh, mostly. Uh, Krishni's saga adds what I think is a great coda to the story. A few years later, uh, after Iceland is converted and after Olaf Tryggvason dies at the Battle of Svolder, Stefnir befriends none other than Thorvald the Far Ranger. Oh, really? Yeah, I <laughs> love that those two become friends. I mean, they've got so much to talk about. He's like, hey, did, do you hate trying to convert Iceland? <laughs> <laughs> you do? Me too. <laughs> Imagine the movie you could you could make about them and their zany exploits. Oh, well, uh, well, what are their zany exploits? Come on. Uh, well, unfortunately, Krishni Saga isn't all that interested in them. No. Uh, the author just reports that they traveled together far and wide around the world <laughs> and all the way to Jerusalem and from there to Miklagath. And then to Eastern Konogatha, along the Dnieper. It sounds like they didn't really go all the way around the world so much as a kind of a... Well, Generally... Know, up and down and <laughs> yeah, back and forth. a little bit of that. <laughs> anyway, uh, Miklagarth is, is the Old Norse name for Constantinople, but uh, mm-hmm. what is Konogarth? Yeah, I had to look that one up too. It's uh, Kiev. Ah, okay. Well, they, I guess they get around, but it's, they're not really going yeah. around the world. Uh, yeah. Uh, so Thorvald finally died in Russia. And sometime after that, Stefnir makes a poem indirectly accusing Earl Sigvald of killing Olaf Tryggvason. I will not name, but I'll take aim. Hooked is the nose of the Nithing who lured King Sven from the land and drew Tryggvi's son into a trap. That's actually really direct for a skaldic verse. Mm. And it, it rhymes. What's, what's up with the rhyming? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a translator's privilege, I suppose. Yeah, some weird rhymes in there. Anyway, um, the only thing that's even slightly obscure is that he doesn't actually name Sigvald, 
But the hook nose description is more than enough in combination with the actions he's describing. Well, we should say that other sources back Stefner up on this. Uh, the infamous Snorri Sturluson's Heimskringla unequivocally blames Sigvald's treachery for Olaf's defeat and death at Smolder. I'm guessing the Earl isn't happy about this maverick showing up and drawing attention to his betrayal. No, he is not. Uh, in fact, he has Stefner captured and killed. Uh, so Stefner never did perfect those people skills, did he? <laughs> no. Poor Stefner. Uh, but I maintain this is a real missed opportunity. I'm so bummed there isn't an entire saga about what Thorvald and Stefner get up to on their journeys. <laughs> this just seems like a Buddy Road movie kind of vibe. Yeah. I want to see Peter Stormare and Stellan Skarsgård as Thorvald and Stefnir. <laughs> get on that, Hollywood. All right. But uh, let's get back to the still unconverted Iceland, shall we? It's kind of the point mm. of what we're up to. Uh, we should say once more that Iceland's situation was somewhat unusual. Olaf was moderately successful in converting Norway and made major inroads in other Scandinavian areas, mm -hmm. though in both cases he left the work unfinished on his death after only five years of rule. Yeah, we'll revisit that later. Uh, so Olaf's managed to create at least cosmetic conversions in the Faroes, in Greenland, his own lands. In fact, Olaf's vision of a Christian north seemed to be gaining momentum everywhere he turned his hand. Except Iceland. Yes, and there are a couple of reasons why Iceland gave him so much trouble. We mentioned earlier the traditional animosity between the two countries. Remember, we're only a couple of generations removed from Iceland's settlement. There are living men and women whose grandfathers fought Harold Fairhair at Haversfjord. And there's also the matter of Olaf's conversion strategy. Uh, Dog Strombach points out that all our sources agree that in his missionary work, Olaf turned his attention above all to chieftains and other influential men. Now, in Iceland, that's going to be a real problem, since even the most powerful men on the island have limited ability to control the opinions and allegiances of their followers. Hmm. Again, this isn't an unusual strategy for conversion in the Middle Ages. But when you look at it, it it's clearly a plan with a definite weakness in coming to grips with the decentralized power structure of Iceland. And that's not to say it's the wrong strategy, it's just that there probably isn't a good option. Converting the chieftains might be the only way to really make headway on the island, but that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, because there are a lot of them. And they're much more dependent on the consent of their peers and underlings to maintain their positions of power than the autocratic earls of other places might be. Right, and taking an unpopular stand might have only short-term consequences for a more authoritarian earl in Norway or Sweden, but, but it might actually end the public career of an Icelander. It's very different. And there are so many internal feuds and power struggles among the chieftains that every convert is going to create a pagan zealot on the other side. Mm. In other words, there probably isn't an easy way to convince Icelanders to do something they don't want to do. Well, I mean, as we said at the outset, there's a bone-deep independent streak in the Icelandic character. The mm -hmm. sagas celebrate that, usually. And they're right. not loving these attempts to force an external religion on them. Right. No, I mean, I'm, the, the expression herding cats comes to mind. <laughs> Uh, so there are all sorts of reasons for problems, and it's not over yet. No, and the, the next ship to arrive from Norway will carry a familiar figure, the axe-wielding, cross-shielding missionary Thongbrand, who's, ah. uh, who's going to be showing up with a more aggressive and bloodthirsty approach to preaching the gospel, mm. as the gospels want to be preached. Right. <laughs> Back in Norway, Olaf's losing patience with Iceland, and he's looking for new ways to force them to fall into line. And that's how we'll kick off the second half of our exploration of the conversion of Iceland. 
For now, if you'd like to tell us what you think of the story we're covering, or if there's anything you'd like more information about, or that you'd like to add to what we said, you can contact us through our Facebook page, Saga Thing Podcast, through our Twitter account at Saga Thing Pod, or by email at Saga Thing Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can compose a vicious slander about us in Skaldic verse and proclaim it at your local assembly. Mm. I understand town meetings usually include open mic opportunities and are often carried on local television. So here's your chance to get involved in local government. Yes, make sure to bring your neath pole right. and mount it properly. But don't tell them that we sent you. Right. <laughs> okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back in a few days with the second half of our story, The Conversion of Iceland. Bye for now. Sorry, there's a lot of innuendo here. In your end.